0: I'd had my ass handed to me after about a year in the market, you know, cause you live you live in the diaspora and you think, oh, you know everything, you know, you have all the resources and everybody in Nigeria is, or everybody back home in Africa is dumb and they're not doing things right. You know, so you have this very, you know, warped view of what it is, but when you kind of spend your time trying to solve the problems, you understand why things are the way they are. They're very fixed structural constraints that, uh, you know, lead to what we see. And so, Um, that complex of, oh, you know, I I know better than everybody, I want to come and save those foolish people, doesn't really help you make the right progress. Welcome to The Grinders Table, the podcast where we sit with C-suite executives and founders who are taking their industry by storm to figure out how you can build an exceptional career and business. Together, we'll try to uncover how they have both defined odds and what you can learn from their experience. Thank you all for joining that episode of the Grinders Table podcast. Today we have an interesting person that I've been meaning to speak to for quite a while. He writes a lot. He speaks about what he's trying to build a lot, and he speaks about the startup ecosystem generally, particularly around Nigeria and in healthcare. Um, Neto, I'd like you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Ah, uh, Thanks, so, um, so Neto's my name. I'm the founder and CEO of Willa Health where we are working on affordable access to healthcare using alternative care pathways and technology. I trained as a a physician and then left that a few years ago to figure out how to use technology to improve healthcare access across Africa. And uh, that's what I'm still trying to figure out. Interesting. Um, You trained as a physician and then you left everything. What was that process like? And what, what got you there? Uh, scary, I would say, um, for perhaps other people, rather than for me, because um, I recall my uh, my mom saying, you know, what are you doing? You know, trying to uh, um, drop all this, you know, things that you've spent a lot of time and energy trying to learn to come and do this whole technology and startup thing. So, um, you know, there was some concern, certainly, um, but for me, actually, it wasn't I look back now and it feels scarier than it was at the time. At the time, it felt like the right thing to do. And in fact, I was not an effective doctor anymore because I was so excited about building, you know, a business that was going to, you know, revolutionize the way healthcare was delivered using technology. So it was very, very exciting. And I took the plunge the moment I found out that uh, I was more eager to get away from a clinic or seeing patients to go work on my business. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a great doctor anymore simply because my attention was elsewhere. Hmm. Interesting. I'm actually looking at this in terms of the various inflection points that everybody tends to have at various points in their life when something that they're probably doing, maybe their job, their work, or something is just not working and they need to make a a decision. For you, again, I know you said you, you lost some joy in being a physician, more ad- what what are the things that help you know that this is the time to make a decision? This is the time to make a change. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's different for everybody. Um, but for me, like I said, I think I was becoming I was always looking forward to the breaks that I could then go, you know, actually work on my business. And I was just very ineffective um as a as a doctor. Well not ineffective, but I wasn't as effective as I knew I could be or should be in medicine so it just made sense for me to actually you know take that plunge um so i think i think people generally you kind of know you know um when the time is right um and then you just take that plunge so i don't think there's a kind of a specific timing but i think when 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 the bug like you're just you're just so excited and eager to take that plunge i think if anything to to make that plunge a bit wiser make sure that you maybe have a safety net in place in case you fail because the odds are you might fail and that you have something to kind of turn to. Because um, when I speak to people that are in similar shoes, I often say to them, you know what, you're very you know optimistic and excited, but make sure you have you know, contingency plans in case things don't work because a lot of times things do not work. Is that your own um, experience when Wella Healthcare kicked off? Well, absolutely, yes. So again, we did not for the first few years. It was a total disaster. You know, so... I liquidated all my savings and pensions and put into well health and you know didn't make any money. I didn't pay myself for you know a good couple of years. So um, you know, I had to return to doctoring, you know, for some time to be able to figure things out. So I think that safety net is really important um to be able to to make sure you do not making kind of you know totally foolish decisions, yeah. Mm. We we'll would come into or we'll discuss what Wear Health actually does later in the conversation. But there's something you re- you wrote in 2015 that talked about the civil complex of diasporans, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I would believe that several people have differing views because it's one thing to travel outside the continent see the way things work and wants to you know bring that transformation back to the continent. But again, I'd like you to touch on that again. Why? What led you to write that article, and why do you think it's even more important for people to know about this at this time? Yeah, so I guess you know I'd had my ass handed to me after about a year in the market. You know, because you live you live in the diaspora, and you think oh you know everything. You know you have all the resources, and everybody in Nigeria is or everybody back home in Africa is dumb and they're not doing things right. You know, so you have this very, you know, warped view of what it is. But when you kind of spend your time trying to solve the problems, you understand why things are the way they are. They are very fixed structural constraints that, uh, you know, lead to what we see. And so um, that complex of, oh, you know, I, I know better than everybody. I want to come and save those foolish people doesn't really help you make the right progress. Because realistically, whatever you've kind of seen in, you know, the US, UK, you know, in Europe or in Asia or whatever, are solutions that work locally and that were kind of created by those people in those areas that understood our understood local context. And the reality is that African problems will need kind of unique African solutions that, yes, will borrow from different places, but will also need a infusion of kind of local new nuance, understanding and know-how. And I think that people that return need to respect that. You respect local culture, respect local people, respect the people that have done work before and infuse all of that into whatever it is that we're trying to solve so that we now create a uniquely African solution. So I think when I first came back, I didn't appreciate that enough. You know, I felt like ah, I've got you know education for the best university in the world, worked at the best places, and I'm gonna go and figure it all out. But the reality is that I had to be humble and understand what the market needed to teach me, and um, so that I can actually create something unique that fits the market. Starting with I hell, did you have a co-founder or you you decided to take this on your own? Um, so I mean, essentially, so yes, I had I had a co-founder initially. Um, but they certainly weren't as invested and involved as I was, and you know they soon left because they had other commitments that came up, uh, which was fair. Um, also I recruited a team that was that consisted of a lot of my you know pals and friends, and I, one of the lessons that I learned early on is you know do not do business with friends, <laughs> um, because they can they it's it's very difficult when when they don't um when they don't uh, perform you know letting them go can be quite traumatic. And um, so, yeah, I learned, I learned those lessons early on of, you know, be careful who you start a business with, make sure that you have a professional relationship um, and never hire people that you can't fire, those types of things. So, yeah. Mm, but you know, I'm willing to dig in here, right? Well, well, again, it's quite difficult um, to let people that are at your friends go, right? Um, so it's actually a two-in-one question, mm. the wall. How did you do it? I mean, what was that experience like? I am talking reality here. People think it's just easy to fire anybody. What was that experience like? And like and two, everybody, you know, talks about the workplace being a family and all that. But in reality, it's oftentimes difficult to do business with your friends. People that you call your friend. So what are your thoughts on those two things? Yeah, so i said the latter first. I'm very opposed to the idea of the workplace being a family. It is not. When people in Weller Health, my company, try to talk about, oh, we're a family here, I stop them. We are not a family here. I mean, which family do you let people go, you know? <laughs> you can't let people go from a family, right? I mean, if you could, it'd be a great family because you could pick and choose who your family is. Um, so the, the workplace is not a family. Like, yes, you should be friendly. Yes, you should, you know, have good relationships. Yes, you, you should even be friends. And in fact, you know, we've built a culture where even when people leave, they also still come back to our parties. We still hang out with them. You know, we still do things together because we have a, you know, a good work culture. But but people are, you know, the workplace is not eating. We're not family there because we're a team that are striving towards a particular um, goal. And people are relevant at certain times and sometimes to become irrelevant. You know, I see a future, for instance, where I will no longer be relevant for Weller Health for whatever reason. You know, I may not be the right person to take it forward. But Weller Health is a living entity on its own that should exist to solve the progress that it needs to solve. And if I don't, if I'm not the best person to do that as CEO, then I should, you know, I should move on and the company should carry on. But I mean, I shouldn't have any hard feelings about it and it shouldn't really make me less of a person um, when that's the case. And now, not everybody has that outlook. So when when we had a lot of challenges at the start, what I had to do was um, essentially shut down, you know? Um, so we just shut down. We just shut down everything because we weren't going anywhere. We're spending a lot of money, not making a lot of progress. And so I just, you know, shut down the whole company. I said, guys, it's not working, let's all go home. Right. And then I essentially, on my own, you know, started to figure things out before I then hired in a better team to to go ahead. So um it wasn't easy firing people. I just essentially shut the whole company down and kind of, you know, respawned a new company altogether. Uh. That, that that's actually quite an interesting approach. Uh, and you mentioned something that we see every day and we're, we're beginning to see quite a lot as African businesses continue to raise money, continue to scale. Um, we find that some of the roles become bigger than those who were occupying it at the initial stage. So you, you started out your pre seed, you had a CEO, and then by your series E, you realize that his competence is not, it doesn't match the role that he, he required to play. Um, how do you think people should manage this? Do you find the person? Do you find um, a different role that fits us? Use the person's skills. Seeing that he's the person started with you from the very first day. How, how do you work around this? It's very difficult. You know, I won't lie. Um, but I think what is important is the people you go on the journey with. I think where possible, find kind of low ego people. Um, but secondly, I think be upfront in the communication, right? And so, you know, with, with the team that you know, I ended up going a lot farther with, I've always been very clear to say, listen, guys, you know, we're the good team now, but there might come a time where, you know, we may, may not be the best for it and we may have to hire, even, you know, somebody better at engineering or somebody better at sales or somebody better at something else. So we, I've always been clear about that and also been clear about the process around it. So that when people aren't delivering, it's kind of clear where we are doing our one-on-ones or, you know, having our catch-ups to say, listen, you know, this isn't going well, you know, we might need to bring somebody in. And um, I don't think firing people is the best routes to go because these people have been there from the start and, you know, we're very valuable. I think giving them the opportunity to continue to contribute and um, continue to grow in a way that still supports the business. And um, I think if you have the people with the right kind of ego, that put the interest in the company first, and you communicate it and manage it in the right way, and things can go, you know, well, but when you have people that are, you know, high ego, don't really understand, uh, don't aren't really bought into the vision, you know, then it can be challenging. I mean, we we had a scenario where this wasn't a, a co-founder or early employee, it was a subsequent uh, person that was a manager of a team, but they had done a good, a poor job, um, essentially because we had over, we promoted them beyond their capacity and hadn't really supported them well enough. And so when we found that out, you know, I had to have them step aside and I brought somebody else in. And so it was a bit of a weird situation where, you know, she was previously a team lead and now she was kind of back in the team as a contributor with a new team lead. And for her, I felt very awkward and she ended up quitting. Um, and, you know, that's, that can happen sometimes where, you know, people quit when they can't take it. Um, but I think the way to manage it is find people that are low ego communicate upfront and then support them in their growth and then, you know, be very clear when it's not working that, you know, you do need to bring somebody in. Oh, good points. The whole essence of building and, you know, striving for excellence is to, I mean, you're working towards a goal, but it's to be a success. What would you define as success to you? Yeah, it's a good question. So as it turns out, I always think I'm very successful. (laughs) As an individual, I think it's really important for founders, especially now where, you know, we're going through a very difficult time. People define, you know, those success externally as, oh, I've raised a lot of money or my business making a lot of money or, you know, whatever else. I think on an individual level, it's important that people see themselves as a success. And personally, I see myself as a success. The fact that I was able to start a business in the first instance, I think that's hugely successful. The fact I was able to, you know, raise some money, build a team. Like I've I've been very successful along the way that if any of this ends now, I will walk away with my head held high that I put in my best efforts and I applied myself as much as I could. So personally, I've always seen myself as a success, you know. Um, Now, there's a different kind of success, which is what is the metric you're using to measure your company by, right? So for me, it is because I have investors, I need to return capital to them. So that is another measure of success is um, while I'm an individual success, there are other metrics that i can use or i should use to measure how well i do in whatever field i'm working in and as far as startups or companies go it is essentially being profitable so you can return you know, some capital back to investors and so for me that is the ultimate goal it's not raising money um, it's not even making money it's actually can i return capital to the investors and um, because that's why i took their money right and if i'm able to do that it means my venture is successful um, and that things have gone very well huh yeah true i i do like your definition of success in terms of how you see it intrinsically and you know extrinsically on the external parts and i again i think that's a very very good approach if not you're going to be so pressured to do so many things um that would ultimately make you unhappy instead of being happy in the end absolutely Um, yeah uh, yeah we're under pressure a lot now as founders and you have to fundamentally believe you're successful and you're doing a great job as a person, as a human being, right? Before anything else, yeah. Hmm. So you're building an unconventional market. That's just the tr- truth. Um, the things that apply in the West, even if you, I, I, like we talked about in in, in terms of the diaspora syndrome, right? Um, what works in the West doesn't necessarily work here because of culture, infrastructure deficit, and all that. Um, what unconventional approach have you, applied in building out well health. That's a good question. So I guess I don't think in, in conventional or conventional, I think I've I've just been my attitude has been to be flexible and just learn as I go along um, and not to be rigid. So perhaps that has just kind of led me to maybe being unconventional, but I find that and um, building a market just means you do have to be um you know fairly flexible. So I mean, I struggle to think of a particular example where things have been a bit unconventional. Um probably everything is probably a bit unconventional <laughs> and simply, simply because of the markets we're in. But I think the key feature has been just being flexible and not coming in with a fixed idea of how things should go, but just kind of going with the flow and then meeting, you know, meeting, being flexible and just meeting the challenges you, you face head on and with a, you know, a little bit of a kind of ingenuity. So that's, that's my take on that. Mm-hmm. You're yeah, one of the people I know that are really obsessed with data, you know, prodding data, collecting data. Why, why, What? Why, why does data interest you so much? Yeah. So lots of people ask me this question um, and I say it's my training, right? So, um, Ooh. going to med school, especially the med school that I, that I went through, but I think generally now in medicine in the West, um, everybody has come to accept that, you know, without, you know, good data, you really can make any decisions. Um, and there's been a number of reasons for that. So, you know, there's a big evidence-based medicine push that has been going over the last few decades. Um, and essentially, in evidence-based medicine, you cannot do anything without providing some type of evidence. And when you do that, you find that there's a lot of devil in the detail, you know, and um, so while for instance, if you approve a drug, and um, in fact, I'll give a specific example, there's there's a new drug um, approved for heart failure, um, and it does very well, right, for the people that it was approved for. But then if you look at the people in the study, and um, didn't put any black people in that study, or very few black people in that study. And so while, you know, on the surface, that's a very good drug, um, if you look at the data, it's actually a good drug, a good drug for white people. Um, because we didn't look enough at what it was for black people. Now, when you dig deeper into the data for black people, it's not that good a drug. Now, the problem with that is that drug costs thousands and thousands of dollars, whereas its alternative only costs like $10. So um, it's a significant decision to make if you're going to, you know, go ahead and do anything based off of that data. So you need to know what it is you're doing and look at it closely. So I think it's my training really um, that has exposed me to that. Um, and then coming back to Nigeria, Africa diaspora, where I think the advantage if you have the right attitude is accepting that you don't know a lot <laughs> and then just trying to read and understand what's going on. Um, because a lot of a lot of Africa is very data dark um, and there's not a lot of data-led decision making. And so that's really just spurred my, you know, need to understand Africa and Nigeria better using data and using that to drive the kind of decisions we make. Um, rather than just going on, on vibes and inshallah, as people say. <laughs> talking about knowing a lot we are we are in, in an ecosystem where trying to couch this properly an ecosystem where it, there are a lot of knowledgeable people and there are a lot of people that behave like they know right mm. uh, and this is not in insult people <laughs> <laughs> well, how, it's... How, how do you how do you manage that especially in your core field in healthcare where you know you sort of know a bit more than these people but they are very kind of loud and they're influencing whether I say policy or change how do you manage that interaction yeah that's a good question i mean i think our culture kind of rewards this kind of loudness and brashness and this um you know appearance right so we we kind of um incentivize that in many ways um I think, again, that the advantage that I've got is, you know, really good training and uh, a really good um, nose for digging for the right answers. I think people can mislead you where you don't know how to look at primary sources for the right answers. But I know how to look at primary sources for the right answers. So It's very difficult for me to be kind of bamboozled or misled. Um, now, the challenge, of course, is trying to work, you know, in, in sort of ecosystems that have those types of people. And it can be very challenging, you know. So I think that, you know, building relationships, it helps. Um, And then also trying to just do kind of broad and general education and, you know, knowledge sharing, and that helps. And I think when people see that you have a bias for, you know, data, knowledge, and the right way, what they do then when they interact with you is either they run away. If they are charlatans, they won't interact with you. Or if they want to interact with you, they come correct, as it were, in that, you know, they try to. To read up on stuff and um, I think that um with healthcare we have a lot of knowledge people in Nigerian healthcare actually um, especially on the policy side um, there's a lot of knowledge there. I think where it really falls is when you get into you know the application of that policy the implementation of those policies and getting say people in government to do it that's where you have the challenges then of you know pecuniary interests taking um precedence and those types of things. so I I I feel like there is decent knowledge available in healthcare. But there's just so many barriers and lots of corruption that um, prevents that health that uh, knowledge from from coming to the fore. And um, tech, on the other hand, that's a different kettle of fish. I think there's a lot of it in tech, and there's no real way to know you know who are the right people or not. And so with that, um, you know, I thankfully you know I've got a really great um, technology lead um, who was you know in low ego, you know, willing to learn. Not one for the Razzmatazz, you know, again, very good science. So I mean people often say that, you know, you want to hire tech people that, you know, they don't make noise. The real tech people don't make noise, right? And so he was one of those people. He just kind of he knows his onions, you know, doesn't make a lot of noise. And you know, he's able to sift through um, you know, all that noise. And in fact, you know, when I when I when I refer somebody to him, he's like, ah, you have come again. All this your you know, Twitter people that they say they know everything, you know, and they, they usually feel an assessment or something like that. So I think and try to cut through the noise in tech and look for the people that kind of know what they're doing and not uh, focused on status or you know um, adulation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, what what exactly are your values, right? What what are the principles you live by? But I, I guess we'll get down we'll get to it down the line because one of the ways I tend to know people is to go through the things that they've written or the thoughts they have shared. And you sh- you shared something that caught my eye was it in 2022 that I talked about your year. And I'm going to just read out a few things and I just want your thoughts. Why why did you think that we... I think one of them is do good things because good things are good to do. Why do you think that's right? Seeing that the world doesn't necess- necessarily need to reward good people. Absolutely. In fact, if you do things, good things for the world to reward you, that will discourage you from doing anything good you know, and I think that's what I definitely learned that year. um, yeah, Because there really isn't any reward. There's not, there's no, there's a lot of times there's no immediate uh, reward for doing the right thing. um, And so I think you have to do the right thing because of you yourself, you know, who you believe, what you believe in. I mean, for me, I believe in God, right? And I believe there'll be a judgment day and I've got to account for all the things that I've done um, and that, you know, doing good and doing right by people um, it's an important feature to have because I'll have to account for that to God ultimately, and um, not because you know I'm going to look good or somebody's going to reward me. You know, those 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 are temporary and a lot of times they don't pan out, and then I can you know flip you then to be you know even even more evil and and do very terrible things. And um, so yeah, for me yeah definitely doing good because it's the right thing to do and um, is important and um, because then you know you're not dependent on reward to determine whether you're going to do good or not. Uh-huh. Generally, it's therapy. Write things down and save your mind from persistent ruminations. Yes, again, um, very important. I think that, you know, the brain has a, is a wonderful organ, but can be bogged down by, you know, things that worry it, you know, anxieties, stress, all of that. Um, And if we don't get it out, um, it can really cloud us. And so what I found was, you know, And some people get this from, say, speaking, for instance, and so that's why they often say, you know, therapy, for example, can be helpful. Not so much that sometimes a therapist will give you the magic answers, but just simply as a catharsis in, you know, speaking and letting it out. And but similarly, in actually writing it and letting it go, and or helping you to just process it is very helpful. And because then, when your mind starts to wander, go back or worry about it, you can say, actually, no, you know, we've written it down. And we've processed it; it's over there. We don't have to worry about it anymore. So I found that you know journaling is excellent for you know helping helping the brain and the mind you know and work through especially difficult things. Yeah, and the final one that I really like, compounding applies to more than just money. Yes, absolutely. So, um, I think the classical way people think about compound interest, right, is is is, is money, of course, but. I find that, you know, certain things gets easier to do with time and with less efforts. Um, and in fact, it's made me a lot more humble and, and accepting of people's kind of flaws and their own learning curve. Recently, I, I was speaking to somebody on my team and I was internally disappointed that, you know, I wasn't leading that team, but I knew way more than them, you know. Um, but then it occurred to me that actually that's probably because, you know, I'm putting all this effort earlier on in my career... And being able to take on more information um, very quickly and act on it was just easier for me because of all the work i had done, you know, so going to the right schools for instance, studying hard early on, um, you know, reading re- right books, all of those things have given me, you know, really, really great capacity to, you know, do things in a way that, you know, people that don't have that privilege can't. So all of those things have compounded to just put me in a, in a much stronger and better position. So... I think knowledge compounds relationships compound you know everything essentially and and come together to make the future easier than it was in the past simply because of the work we put in wow thanks for sharing um i mean obviously you're an entrepreneur yeah training as a doctor You're actually quite a very interesting intersectional two fields two growing and painful fields And then you're building in healthcare and in africa which also is not very easy now one of the things that i see or one of the mistakes or one of the features of our ecosystem is that people to to solve the problem and to get a big chunk of the market people layer up features on the products right they keep on just putting on new features and new features and all that what how do you stay focused in well health such that you are you just laser target on what you're trying to solve and you're not being distracted about all the tiny things all the other tiny things that people are doing yeah geez i don't i don't think that i've escaped that i think because you know how complex healthcare can be and there's a temptation to do a lot so honestly i think that's something that we are still figuring out simply because healthcare is so difficult it's so complex and it's so wanting in many regards um in fact, recently, um, I've been talking to my team about a kill list. So we have a number of things we built, um, and that t- takes up resources. And I was saying to them, you know what? We really need to be a lot more focused. And we need to start either killing or sunsetting things that we haven't used um, for a while. Um, it kind of helps that uh, as your credit expired, and then, uh, you know, the, as your bill was getting <laughs> larger. <laughs> so I said, oh, yeah, well, let's start killing things. Um, but I have to kind of to think about about focus. So we've run some experiments in the past. We had them, you know, going on in the background, and we said, you know what, let's start killing things off. And so what we did, you know, a lot of my team were like, oh, you know, shouldn't we do that? And I said, you know what, turn it off. And if nobody complains, clearly you don't have a great feature there, product, you know. And so we've been turning off things slowly, um, and you know, nobody's been complaining. So we're like, okay, you know, maybe we should turn off more things. So um, we're definitely learning how to focus a lot more. Um, but there's always that temptation. Honestly, there's always that temptation, especially in healthcare, especially in Africa, where there's just so much lacking and um, to do more. I, I, but we can't, you know, we, we have limited funding, limited time and resources. So um, I think it's a constant battle. And I don't think I know the answer yet. If you do, please share. <laughs> <laughs> true, it's, true. It's, again, it's it's always a constant battle. Mm-hmm. Um, you've all been listening to Neto, and as you can see and hear, He's a really, really energetic person, he's smart, he's passionate about what he's trying to solve, and he's quite knowledgeable, that is. that's what I think, and I hope you think so too. Wow. Um, Neto, in rounding up, what would you say is, and it could be more than one, is one advice that you wish people gave you before you, you know, stumbled into the world of entrepreneurship? So that's a question I always struggle with because I do I don't do counterfactuals, you know. I, I I don't even do regret so much. Um so if there was one advice, I would that's that's a tough one. Um I I I don't know that there was any one advice that I needed because like I said, I was always I was always looking for kind of the best way to do things. And once I found better information, I adjusted, you know, and it's hard to kind of look back and say, well, this should have been better, that should have been better. So I don't know that there is, you know, one advice I would have I would have you know benefited from. Um I guess if I was to give advice now regarding entrepreneurship. Yeah, wait, wait, hold on. Before you say that, I've got this is going to be the last question. What is one advice that people don't give that you want to give? Ah, advice that people don't give that I want to give. I think you know, advice is very is a very tricky thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I give I give advice professionally, doctor. So I understand the you know the importance of advice. You know I could end up in jail if I give the wrong advice. advice <laughs> so, is 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 difficult because it's very context specific. There's so many things. There's a lot of bias. You know, there's it's, it's complex. But I think that one advice. Um, I actually I think my my general advice for life is this: is be true to yourself. I think. I think that. Many of us pursue paths that are not ours because we're afraid of you know whatever, whatever it is. And I think that leads to a subpar life. I think that what you want to do in life is try to understand you know what your ultimate calling is and be true to that. Don't be pressured by who oh, everybody's doing Fintech, then you go to Fintech, who oh, everybody's you know moving to the UK, you move to the UK. everybody's doing this, you go to that. I think that everybody has a unique path that they need to figure out and apply themselves. It's often difficult. So if you're you're going down the easiest routes or the natural thing to do, a lot of times I don't think that's often the best. I think there's something unique that all of us are placed on earth to do. And our job is to figure that out and to apply ourselves to doing it. And if it's too easy, you're probably not on the right path for you. So I'd say find find what that path is and be true to yourself and follow that path. Find work-up is and betray yourself. Thank you so much, Neto, but I'm going to crave your indulgence because I remembered that prior to us having this conversation, you talked about your daughter. And I also remember some conversations back. I spoke to a founder who told me that Damn. managing his home is as tedious as managing his startup because he also mm. has a young daughter. Mm. How do you balance the two? Hi, It's very difficult. I mean, oh, G is talking about advice. Maybe that's the advice I should give. If you have a family, don't do a startup. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very difficult, you know. Um, and I, I would say that the most important thing, actually, at the end of the day, is about our families and our relationships. So again, I've spoken about how you know one day you know I'll live well and health, passing on to somebody else. Um, and, you know, I will not be really bad anymore. Um, but one place I'll always be really bad is in my family. And so putting that first and always remembering, even when it's very difficult, to prioritize the family and invest in that family relationship so that when the time comes to fall back on that, because we all do, we all need to fall back on our relationships. Those relationships are actually there for us to fall back on. So, uh, I mean, the way you do it's difficult, but I think it's being deliberate, you know, so getting involved in day to day, you know, um, I think that, you know, while see house helps and meets and things like that are useful and um, they can actually rob us of the opportunity to, you know, build bonds and relationships with our, with our families and, and kids in particular. So sometimes, you know, you go drop the kids school, you, you know, um, make the a lunch, you, you know, go out to them do all that stuff, all the day to day stuff. And it is in that that you build the relationship and um, don't be too busy. Um, to not do those kind of daily stuff because if if you don't very quickly you know you lose touch with your family and you only have a short time you know from what I've read um if you haven't built a, a good bond and relationship with your kids by Sunday the at ten it's almost impossible to do it so when you got small kids you know really spend the time and they say kids spell love T I M E you know when they are you know zero to ten you gotta spend a lot of time with them know who they are and play with them you know build hobbies together you know all of that and then that will stand stand you um you know in the longer term it's tough you know but yeah it has to be done they are the most important thing actually yeah 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 um, i i remember somebody saying that the litmus test for him is if his child be willing to play with him at 18 then he knows he has done well as a father and yeah, and exactly. that that struck me as yeah but but the problem is you don't get that feedback until later right <laughs> <laughs> yeah unfortunately yeah yeah, but the key thing is to do it early. You know, you have to find, you know, projects or hobbies or stuff that you do with your kids that you both love. And um, But the only way you find that is by just spending time with them, spending a lot of time with them. And one of the highest value things that I've done and I've read in the research is really good is reading to your kids every night. If you read read to your kids every night, um, you know, that has a very good positive predictive value for having a good relationship with them. Huh. Thank you so much, Neta. I'll have to let you go. It's been a really awesome conversation here. you thanks so much pleasure cheers yeah. that's all on today's episode of the Grinders Table and thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast please share it with others post about it on social media or leave a rating and review to catch all the latest from me you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Montior O M. that's at Montior for me French O M. thanks again and I'll see you next time